You got much on after? Um, today, actually, no, it's not bad, but I got oh. a script I haven't written. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've got to get that done. So you're doing a script, honey? I am. But not a script. <laughs> script It's just a script for a... You're in a movie? No. It's a speaking thing, right. which I have to speak to camera, but they want the script beforehand. Okay. Which is just extra. But I was kind of hoping you were going to say you're writing a movie. No. <laughs> I we can know. lie. I don't know. I don't know. Like, have you got any spare parts? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the next question, eh? Have you got any spare parts for a couple of spare parts? <laughs> In London itself, you know, there is some places that are quite kind of left to their own devices, and I came from one of them. Our minds had really been taken by this deception of an ideology they call gangsterism. This time on Life After, we speak to Carl Loco, former gang leader um, in London. So, Carl, where did it all start for you? Oh, um, in the womb. Ah. <laughs> yeah. well, there we are. Thanks very much for coming to see us today. Really that's enjoyed life, that. That's life after all. <laughs> what's life been like after the womb? <laughs> you know what? Actually, and that's a good question. Yeah. Because people hear um, the tagline, former gang leader, and then assume maybe I came from the generic kind of story or situation, or maybe um, mother and a substance, father not there. And that it was, I mean, you couldn't get any further from the opposite. Mm. My reality was both very doting, lover, loving our mother and father, as present as they could be with the nine to nine menial chokehold, you know? So, um, yeah, but it was, it was a good time. They loved, um, academics was esteemed in my house. Mm. You know, I was actually yeah. um, diagnosed as a child as a, um, a genius. <laughs> yeah, no wow, that's a terrible diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. How did you deliver yourself? <laughs> My school was really quite forward thinking. Mm-hmm. Mind you, they were a really quite old Victorian school that had a huge kind of um, Freemasonry association. So they had a bit okay. of cash. Yeah. Um, so we had like botanical gardens. We had oh, um, wow. swimming pools. We had mm-hmm. 3G pitches. And this is for like what is essentially an unequal part of Britain and those coming from the lowest kind of socioeconomic situation, you know? that's fantastic. And yeah, so they provided all of that. And their whole thing was that you can find talent even in these places, you know? And so they did some, they brought some people in that obviously, if you're not in a particular school, they couldn't have done that, Mm -hmm. you know? And they combed the school to see if they could find any kind of like academic kind of excellence in that regard. And yeah, it was me and two others. So three of us, like, and then we'll treat it like guinea pigs. Oh, <laughs> Not in a bad way, yeah, really, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Like tests were given. We did, I did my year nine SATs in year six. Wow. You know? You so. are a genius. You are. We should be talking to you about something else. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, it started so well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, did, Carl, did you cut, was your family religious? Um. Mm. I think loosely. Okay. Okay. My mother, yes. Father, no. Mm-hmm. So the mix of the two, loosely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um like I was baptized right. um, in an Anglican church. Yeah. Um my mother did attend services, I wouldn't say every week or anything like that, but maybe a few times a year. Mm-hmm. And especially like the hallowed kind of Easter's mm-hmm. and the rest of it. Um, my father, 
not so much, mm. you know, and yeah, that was just the reality. Then I went to school, which was a Catholic school, um, had a bit of that there and then, but I always had a God consciousness myself. I was always kind of aware. However, it didn't really become a main fixture in my life till much later. Given you're highly educated and, um, you know, all those things at school that was yeah. at your disposal, why did you go down the route of being a gang leader? Um, I grew up on um, the, the Mikesville Estate, mm-hmm. you know, which if you're local kind of speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. The, mm, for sure. um, local publications used to um, refer to it as the Devil's Den. Um, one article actually said Lucifer himself is afraid to walk through there. Mm. Um, the barrel commander of Lambeth actually instructed all of his force that no one should, no foot patrol basically in that area. Is that dangerous? You have to literally be in the car or be, be with um, armed officers, you know, and we didn't have that luxury to not walk through the area that, you know, it's kind of our <laughs> locality. So I ended up witnessing someone being shot um, when I was 12 years old in quite an horrific way. And um, the shooter actually, after discharging his firearm, ran back to where me and my mates were just kind of playing um, goal to goal. Literally took off his jumper, put it on one of our makeshift goalposts and told us to pass him the ball. And literally played footy with him till the police came and went. Wow. And that was the introduction to, we are no longer in Kansas, you know. How old was you then? <laughs> um, 12. 12. Literally oh, just turned. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Technically for still 11.9. Do, you know, <laughs> do, you, do you know what? Um, for a kid that age to be exposed to that level of violence, mm. uh, not to have even got to a point where you're watching films with that kind of violence, you, you yeah. know, 11 and a half years old, coming up 12, just turned 12, whatever. Was there a part of you that thought that, it was wrong, but the way he did it was just like, yeah, it was quite cool, good actually, question, the way he got question. out of it. Yeah. I was, it was traumatic and romantic. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I was, my parents, I can say it now because they've got their, their papers, but mm-hmm. my parents initially were here um, illegally, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, migrated from West Africa, Ghana, hopefully trying to, like, make good on this commonwealth um, idea. And um, yeah, it came into the country both, like they don't use profanity, let alone break the law. Okay. Like my parents is like, Beautiful. they are the, like, Love I that. mean, like they don't even swear. Like, you know, so really kind of clean whistle, clean behind mm, yeah, the ears, yeah. all the rest of it. So you can imagine how they kind of took to me taking to the roads. But yeah. um, what I did realize quite early on actually was just the theme of powerlessness. It was, very apparent, you know, um, my mother or my father, whenever they would get on the phone to someone that was indigenous from the UK, mm. you would you, you would hear their voice change, they'll put on their best, I have a passport voice. Would that kind of sound a little bit like yes, that? Yes, yes, <laughs> They try their best, you know, and fail miserably, yeah, but they're yeah. trying, giving it a good, but valiant they were, effort. They were trying for you. Mm. You know, they were, they were trying for survival, but just, the aim was to always be seen and not heard. Mm. And being lower socioeconomic situation, being a, a part of the ethnic minority, being from a different culture, having a different accent, and all kind of having the connotations of being lower mm. or lesser or inferior, that spoke. And then you also, when you're coming from unequal parts of Britain, you also do feel that feeling of disenfranchisement. And I know a lot of people feel that coming from outside of London. 
they feel like it's but in London itself you know there is some places that are quite kind of left to their own devices and mm. I came from one of them yeah. you know so we did feel kind of ostracized and left out and just that feeling of powerlessness brutality was actually a semi-solution like seeing him doing what he did he didn't look like a powerless inferior he was actually very significant and very actually the opposite powerful actually you know even though it was brutal you know which was a weird kind of um thing to witness at such a young age but it definitely did um change me for sure i remember listening to your, your ted talks actually um and you reference yourself of having someone with a mask on yeah living like that with a mask how did it impact your lifestyle you said on your ted talks that you struggled later on to kind of keep that mask and you brought it into your home. Yeah. How did that impact your kind of family life? And I know you've mentioned there about um, the impact of you witnessing catastrophic events, but how did it impact your parents and how did they try and pull you back into the right direction? It's a difficult yeah. question. Um, you know what? In regards to the mask, the reason why I say the mask is because it weren't actually a... I want a feral child, like like the, like the publications may like kind of put out, you know, like the hoodies, like you know, it wasn't. I wasn't born with a hoodie on, you know. Didn't meet JD till a lot later on. <laughs> but literally, my going outside was a totally different situation than inside. You know, inside was still certain values. Outside, it didn't look like there was no currency with those values, mm -hmm. you know? So in order to survive out there, that's when I then would put on this mask, you know? Mm -hmm. And putting on the mask obviously had its kind of like explicit effects of um, like um, making the front page of every newspaper in the country, you know, when I was um, 14 years old. And that was due to this whole phenomenon of gang terrors on the websites. It was like sensationalized. What year was that? Oh, ooh, I am 30 oh. now. Oh. Oh. 60, that's 60 years ago now. Okay, so we'll, we'll just get over that question. Yeah. <laughs> so so thinking, mid noughties. Yeah, yeah mid noughties. About yeah, yeah, yeah. 2004. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then um, front page of every newspaper in the country, two weeks running um, on Sky News. Like it was just crazy. Yeah. Wow. But I had already, actually already got pinched for um, those very images because okay. it had me and a couple of friends posing with um, a replica shotgun. You know, and um, yeah, I got pinched in school for it, which was a real kind of two-pack mm -hmm. moment, help for the PR and all that. Been there many yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> but as you can imagine, my mother's distraught. Okay. You know, I mean, distraught. She was like, "How it's huge negligence on the media's behalf in regards to putting like um, us as underage kind of teens on." like with our face shown, you know? I could see it was having an effect on her, but when you're so young, you're very selfish. Yeah. I, I didn't see the fullness of it, but then um, me and my father's relationship got particularly strained, you know, as a result of my kind of like being involved. Um, then in regards to even staying at home, I felt like the more I stayed at home, the more I made home a target. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I stayed at home less in order to, so then that brought uh, a wedge as you can imagine. And then I am the one that's kind of getting whispered on, 
in terms of mm. like at family yeah. meetings and yes. discussions and what are we going to do with him yeah. have you heard not, of not, even, not even so much yeah that would be happening for sure but not even in my um, immediate family I'm talking about kind of like extended, extended and also like the African um, definition of family. You know, all the family friends. Oh, gosh. All the rest of it, you know. The, the, the uncles and aunties yeah, that aren't yeah, really uncles yeah, and aunties. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure, for sure. But have even more say than your uncles yeah. and aunties. Yeah. yeah, those ones. You know, so it became quite a topic that, you know, like Carl is, you know, like, oh, this one saw me here. This one saw me there doing this. This one heard I was involved here. You know, and that became very, I became the black sheep as a result of it. You know, so I didn't go to any more family functions, you know. Only serves to isolate you as well. Absolutely. You know, in that kind of situation. Absolutely. So the gang, which they call the gang, which I called my family, even then became even more. Your family? My family, yeah. What was the moment for you when you realized it was life after everything that you were uh, doing, the behaviors you were exhibiting, yeah. your conduct. Yeah. When did you realize it's time to move on? There was no moment for me, I must be honest. It weren't, I always kind of tried to describe it like there was no big bang, none. Like it was a cluster. I was really involved. My mind had really been taken by this deception you know, of an ideology they call gangsterism. It was totally, you know, me. Every part of my life was enthralled in it by it. my social groups, my income, my identity, you know, um, the conversations I'm having, like everything was wrapped in that. Mm -hmm. So to unwrap and unpack that was definitely not a moment. I don't think they, there is a moment created maybe except for death, that would have taken me out of that in a moment. There's absolutely none that's created, you know? So it was a culmination of events and absolutely. things? Absolutely. You know, like, um, there's a few that really comes to mind was um, one day when I had actually picked up some, um, some drugs, yeah? And I had met my kind of plug, went to go and... Um, bag up this um, bit of, um, I'm trying not to call it food because that's the slang we used to call it. <laughs> okay. It was like food. But yeah, if, if I slip and say food, you know, I don't you actually- You've watched Top Boy, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's brought up to speed then, yeah? <laughs> yeah, so I have this bit of, it just sounds, you know, it's, and that's the power of vocabulary. Like even if someone passed away, it'd be like, oh, he, he got turned off or, Oh, he's, he's been deleted. So the language you used. The language. So he, I even struggle now saying, oh, I was in the basement bagging up drugs. Yeah. Sounds wow. a bit like, yeah. what would I you have no problem saying I was bagging up food though. Mm. So you're in the basement bagging up food? Yeah, mm. I have no, but when you say drugs, it just feels like, wow. That's yeah, nice, man. It's kind of weird. So, so yeah, so you were yeah, doing that. I was doing that anyway. And in this one occasion, usually all I think about is profit. I don't even see drugs. I see profit. I see money. Mm. You know, I see a means to an end, you know. But this one time, while I was doing it, the words kept on ricocheting in my mind. You're making a living of other people suffering. Mm-hmm. You're making a living of other people's suffering. You're making a living of other people's suffering. And I, I mean, it's not even a sentence that had been said to me. You know, no one hadn't come to me and said, oh, you, you're making a living of other people's suffering. It's almost like just the things I was receiving at the time, the messages, and it just formed like that mm. in quite a divine way that it disturbed me. 
you know, and now the whole process of that had been stained. So now I'm no longer doing that comfortably. Yeah. So that was one real kind of shift. Yeah. And next one was a good friend of mine actually being murdered. He wasn't actually the first one to be murdered. You know, why does that particular example stand out? Um, if I'm being honest, I can't really say in terms of why that one situation stands out the most, but it did and it had a um, real effect on me. Because um, he, he was saying that, listen, this is also a means to an end, that this is currently what we have to do in order to get by, but we're trying to get by, we're getting- Survival. Like, well, yeah, we're on our way out. Like, we don't see, this is not life forever. Mm. You know, I had started attending um, the local church and so had he, and we were like, we were having certain conversations that was above what we were in. Right. But he's like, we're still in what we're trying to be above. So we got to kind of like, you know, there's a code of conduct. And I'm, I'm kind of debating with him about that. And then the next day he gets, um, I was going to say turned off, but he gets uh, murdered, murdered the next day, you know? And yeah, that just, again, our conversation less than 24 hours before that kept on ricocheting in my mind till it created a bit of a shift, you know? I want to carry on down the road of the things that culminated to you going, right, there's got to be life after this. But just off the back of something you said, Carl, with like, um, you were living at this higher level, trying to find your way out, you were going to church and everything like that. Yeah. The people that you were working for, Yeah. I presume they didn't know at the time that that was your intention to get out. If they did, what would their reaction have been? You know what? That's that's a very... Um, it's actually a dated model, especially when it comes to London. Mm. So there is a crime family angle in terms of the UK. You know, like you can have particular families and then there's a real kind of pecking order mm -hmm. and hierarchy. Why it's a lot more dangerous actually in London and why there's so much more kind of like um, murders is because you can be judged sheriff and execution all by yourself. Okay. You know, it's not like you kind of have to get the go ahead from anybody. You know, as I say, like I got to gang leader kind of status um, pretty early on. I was a gang leader maybe from the age of maybe 16. You know, so there wasn't anyone I had to actually get anything signed off by, you know, so um, that wasn't the trouble. The trouble actually was that getting off, I'd already been kind of like crapping where I'd been sleeping. Okay. So it's a very smelly situation yeah. already, you know, so, and I was very well known. I was arguably one of the most popular street level gang members in London. Everybody knew who you were. Yeah, for sure. And if they'd not met you, they knew your name. Uh, absolutely. There wasn't a gang member in London that probably didn't, especially in, I'll say South London. Yeah, North London. I mean, I was known, you know? And especially like uh, two boroughs that way, two boroughs this way, you yeah. know, for sure. So um, getting out wasn't as simple as, yeah, I'm leaving because they all identify and associate me with a particular area. Things have already transpired, you know. Um, even I'm feeling like we owe them something. They're feeling like they owe me something and, you know, vice versa. It was a mess, you know. So getting out of that, it was just the pressure of that. And obviously I'm a leader in that setting. Mm. So people are looking to me. Yeah. And it was more like, oh, you're, you're abandoning us. You actually part of the reason why, like, the, like what happened to me with those that were coming underneath me, like there were those that had gone before me also. 
I, I got pulled in their slipstream almost, you know? And there's some young people that say in the same situation, like, I'm here because essentially you're here. Like, <laughs> and now you're saying that you don't want to be here, you know? And that was definitely affecting people, but not to make the audience not like me. Because <laughs> there's a risk of that. Uh, no, 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 I think, I, think I love you already, man. No. I told a lie. <laughs> you know, I've gotten quite good at telling my story, you know, because essentially we're all victims, but they don't see the victim if you're victimized and all, you know? For sure. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but yeah, like literally people essentially just didn't want me to revert on them. Mm. So I was almost left to actually rehabilitate, especially yeah. directly in my locality. No one didn't give me any sort of pressure to say, oh, you've got to come back. There was no one to, you know, me and my kind of circle, mm -hmm. we were upper echelon in that regard, you know? So you mentioned identity, the natural processes. You, you become a drug dealer. How do you think that stereotype resonated with you when you was when you was growing up i know you i know you said some that certain incidents um empowered you in a sense yeah and then also on the opposite side so how do you think that stereotype influenced you i'd say hugely mm -hmm. even if on a subconscious level mm -hmm. yeah um I, I it was apparent that in terms of like a distribution of wealth mm -hmm that those that had any kind of level of financial freedom, I don't even call it freedom, because obviously now we know that there's levels to this, you know, oh, but, sure. yeah, <laughs> you know, but anyone that had a level, as a, a, a seaman kind of financial independence, mm -hmm. um, they could drive German cars, go to sunny destinations, wear Italian clothes, were those that were doing it illegitimately mm -hmm. in my community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And especially anyone that I knew that had any money that looked like me was definitely doing it mm -hmm. illegitimately mm -hmm. in my community. So yeah, that definitely did affect me, okay. you know, um, but absolutely like, especially in London, rather than, no, I think worldwide, but it's more a class situation because mm. um, there was a lot of like um, white boys in my gang, yeah. a lot of like, um, even Chinese, mm. like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, a, it's just definitely more class. class thing, yeah. You yeah. know, so, um, yeah, just that, it, it was just a lack, you know, but even though it was, it's a Western poverty, you're still a, you know, in terms of context of the mm -hmm. city we're in, you know that you're part of the have nots. Yeah, for sure. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, you want to rectify that. And then they're telling you at school, work really hard and then you'll get ahead. And then you're like, that's not necessarily true. Cause my mother works 14 hour days, which I know is technically illegal, but she's in that chokehold and mm -hmm. they kind of know she needs the cash. So they will keep her there 14 hours and she's getting paid like, and we're not making ends meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, you're telling me to work hard, but my mother is the pit of me that, mm -hmm. and it's not working. Mm -hmm. So they're like, nah, I don't want what my mom's got. So sure. then you start, you know? So yeah. Life after. We talk about profound circumstances. Um, so for me, personally, when I retired from rugby, I struggled with an identity. Depression, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know what angle to go in. So what principles now have you put in place to kind of develop you further as a man um, to kind of prosper in the chosen area that you've decided to go into? That's a, that's a hell of a question, actually. Yeah, yeah. In regards to what principles put in place in order to ensure the development in terms of life after, I would say Kaizen. I fell in love with that word, 
Kaizen. What does that mean? Yeah, can um, you elaborate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it's a Chinese word for um, continuous improvement. Okay. You know, and it was something actually, if I'm being honest, that we did embody on the street level. We had that kind of singular focus of moving the dial, whatever that looked like, you know? Mm. Um, but I realized that I had to take it on in even a more kind of exaggerated way. Okay. Because a lot of people may be starting at zero when they get to 20. But I was starting at minus 15, you know, mm. <laughs> because of obviously everything yeah. that's transpired, life situation, like how I look, whatever it is, yeah? Mm. So I'm like, it's minus 15. There's a clear disadvantage here. So if I'm going to actually get to this 20 point, I'm going to have to get going, you know? Yes. So I dedicated every single day to becoming a better version of myself. Brilliant. You know, and I mean... Um, that took shape in terms of spiritually, emotionally, um, physically, the initial transformation period and coming out of that, the exodus, it was more weightlifting at that time. Then I did a lot of fasting as well. Okay. Huge amount of fasting. Oh, internal cleansing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which probably played into yeah. the spiritual, the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I haven't had that level of clarity since. Do you know, it's, it's an extreme situation I was in and the extremity led me to an extreme kind of um, way of dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I was actually fasting six days a week. 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay. That was life for about wow. a year and a half. Oh, wow. And then I became an autodidact and I literally read a book a week. I did that for two years, mm -hmm. read over like 100 books. Then I would learn 10 new words a day to change my lingual syntax. Um, and like, I mean, I, I, I would wake up every day at 5 a.m., have my power hour, golden hour, um, frog hour, which I'll swallow the frog and you know, the rest of it. Like, and I mean, like, and I was doing 30 to 40 one on one meetings a week wow. at a point, you know, like, I mean, I really just didn't stop. Yeah. You know, I didn't even know what kind of chill was. Mm -hmm. And was, was it because in order to change your identity, yeah. you felt that you had drastic times call for drastic measures? Absolutely. Because you so badly wanted this new identity, whatever that was going to be. And yeah. what we're interested to know, I think, is did you know what you wanted your identity to be or did you just know you wanted to change what you were? Yeah. It's weird. Um, Pastor Mimi, who did the bulk of the rehabilitation work with me, she's like Lambeth's mother, Teresa, yeah? Awesome woman, yeah? She actually, so a lot of my um, rehab actually came through what we're doing, just talking, conversation. I still believe conversation is the most powerful thing on earth, yeah? So in one of our many conversations, um, which was healing, all sorts of things, you know, disturbing, like provoking, like... This particular day was provoking, yeah? And she made a statement. I don't think she even knew what would be the effect of it, you know? But she released it anyway. And it did change my life forever. She said, yeah, you guys have Brixton, but, like, you could actually maybe have Britain. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, it was quite you shouldn't tell me that sort of statement mm -hmm. basically you know like i 
I mean, I remember exactly where I was even when, when she said it. It was profound. It just really, I don't know whether it's because they both begin with a BR and end in an N. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but the connection was yeah. like, and I knew in a regard to like, we were kind of considered the kings in Lambeth. Like I'm a Lambeth king. I am the Pope in Brixton, you know, like I, we, we did attain that sort of kind of like status. So when she was saying that it was like, all right, kind of, I was like, hmm. She's not even saying like, usually it's like, oh, stop doing that, that's bad. She was actually saying, no, you are more than that. And that really challenged me. So initially what the kind of, I would say port of destination was, was M-I-M-I-B. And that was my acronym for most influential man in Britain. Okay. And I literally just walked towards that. So would you say that that was your defining moment then? It was one of them. One of them. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely it was, yeah. it was, yeah. It's it up there. Really, it's, it's up there. totally yeah. up there. Mm. I mean, I'm, I can taste the air mm. of when, when she said it to me at that moment. Mm. And she carried on going on in the sentence. So I know it wasn't her punchline, mm. but it punched me, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. Life after. I, I was kind of thinking about the way people react to your story. Because your story is very profound. Where you came from was very profound. London is quite an insular place when you don't live in London. Agreed. So I'm thinking about our audience across the UK. Yeah. And also around the world. Mm. And in different cities around the world, you get different gangs if you want to label them. as Absolutely. But they're very very different. Um, The general population will never have been exposed to what you were exposed to when you were a kid growing up, teenager. Yeah. How do you find people react to you? And I'm not talking about in an audience when you're giving a conference. I'm just like, just in everyday life, they, yeah. they, they know that, you know, Carl Loco, he was the guy that was the Pope of Lambeth. Yeah. And not in, not in the Christian way. Yeah. Baptizing. Do you know what? I've had to become quite delusional mm. just in life. Like, <laughs> I must be honest. I know <laughs> people are going to be concerned and start calling in some helplines. But literally, like, it, is, <laughs> it's, it, it was a part of survival, I guess. And I am very kind of phantasmagoric in my, like... It's a great word. Yeah, the scene of life and yeah. manoeuvring. So um, that didn't help, you know, with this delusion angle. But, like, I mean, I used to leave my house, yeah. And Mike'sville Estate was a unique place, I must be honest. You can live there and then you're walking through it at night and you're, you are still scared. And I'm not even talking about like um, physical threats. It's just uh, a, a dark place. Like, I mean, it's history. The fact that we had, um, there was hardly any pigeons. But Even we, the pigeons didn't want to yeah. go there. They didn't yeah. want to go there. And the reason Gosh. why I didn't really want to go there too much is because there was at any given time on any day in Mitesville Estate, and they can quote me on this, there was about 500 crows. No. I give you my word. That is I'm crazy. literally circling. We had some hills and they would circle at times. And I mean, it just looked like something out of a horror film. Oh, gosh. And then we'll, it was built on top of a cemetery. And like, oh, oh my God. You know, it just had a, it had a weird sort of feeling. And if, if you want to get all spiritual and stuff, yeah. you wonder if that kind of played into I the mean, vibe of the I place, right? I must be honest, I absolutely think it was connected. They can't tell me otherwise. You know, I, have, I had gang members that were actually like, really good at what they did that were affiliated to us, maybe come and visit us and will ask us to walk them off the estate when they're leaving. 
Like, I mean, like, oh in God. terms of, like, yeah, an yeah. eeriness, no you know, like, real rap. So then, but then what, some of the kind of, like, again, like, obvious things was that, like, maybe you see rats and um, it smelled of sewage. So it was broken, but it smelled of sewage, you know? So you'd come outside and then I'll go, ah, home. Like, I just lit a diptyque candle. That's so mad. honestly, it's yeah. that level of delusion. You know what I mean? You had to kind of frame it in your mind to be something that it wasn't. And I think to answer your question, the very long-winded way is I have that same thing today because if I'm being honest, being a former gang leader, I've only been met with further kind of judgment. Yes. And right. you know, it has been, and I've had to kind of keep living in my own kind of, yes, yeah. you know, to yeah. be able to cope. And it's a muscle that I did start to develop quite early on, but literally, yeah, it is met with extremely mixed reviews. You know? I love that. Yeah. That is probably the, the key thing. It's yeah. met with, with, uh, with mixed reviews and that yeah. makes a lot of sense. But the thing is, I mean, we need to say and, and validate the fact that that's not your life anymore. No. no. You have nothing to do with that. No. It's a chapter that's closed. Absolutely. You've found your life after. Yeah. And I think that's, that's what we want to come on to really, don't 100%, we? 100% the positive side because when I met you first, Carl, you're such an infectious, colourful person, oh, you know. Man. Thank and so I, I, drew, I drew to you straight away. Um, we was in the French Alps jamming with Sam Branson. Yeah. <laughs> what, Rich, Richard Branson's son? Yeah. What are you doing Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. It's okay. Very hush hush. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then you such you, you were infectious. You, you caught me straight away. And um, the poems that you was um, hitting, hitting yeah. that, that yeah. day was, was fantastic. Thank you so can much. I just ask, with the, yeah. can we just go back to the jamming quickly? Yeah. Um, are you a musician? I am my hobby. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> are you a musician? Hey, you I'm a man. I am a man of many traits, mate. <laughs> so, so when you were jamming, what what, yeah. what was your part? Spectating. <laughs> You did say spare parts, spare parts, right? And what were you doing during this jam car? Um, I was actually, I was the, my instrument was my voice. Ah, yeah. okay, cool, that, yeah. makes that makes sense, that makes sense. So yeah, no, good times, man, yeah. good times. Yeah, it was really, really good. You guys have known each other for for a long time and, and I've, I've only met you today. Yeah. But you know what feels totally right? You are an infectious person. Oh, thank you. There's so much positive energy you, you run around with. It's refreshing and it's warm and it's nice to, to know that after the crap that you've been through, yeah. you can come out the other side and you can live life after as somebody who is a warm, lovely, personable human being. How do you attain that? Do you know what? I think the guiding kind of principle, philosophy that enables anyone to do that, because it's not exclusive at all, yeah, is acknowledging that it happened for you and not to you. So things happen to us, you know, like we are all victims. Like that is, that is what I know. Being a social commuter, spending half my time with the haves and the have nots, those that kiss twice, kiss once, like no money don't know what to do. All the money don't know what to do with it. And I mean like towing those lines of society, yeah? I mean, I have heard different people articulate their struggles and their troubles and no one's immune. 
no one's exempt, you know. Um, but where I've seen it kind of help procreate um, marvelous and wonderful things is when people arm themselves with what harmed them initially, <laughs> you know. So like it's those that are like, you know what, this has happened for me, not to me. So for example, I've heard like, and I mean, this is a, obviously an extreme um, scenario, but this is a reality. I've heard a young, a young lady actually, who was, um, I actually heard her story when I was in um, Florida. And she was making mention of how she was part of a group that would sexually abuse her in um, South, South America in the name of religion and all the rest of it. It was like very kind of heavy stuff, yeah? And she basically was like, as a result of it, she uses that pain and it has pushed her to want to create a center for such young ladies going through a similar lot in that same community. And she says that that happened for her to do that center because that center didn't exist when she was going through hers, but it will exist now for those that are going through theirs because it happened to her. But if it hadn't have happened to her, then that center would not be. You know, so for me, I'm like, even though it is like such a, a, what a route, you know, to take it to purpose. But I'm basically in a nutshell saying every road leads to purpose. You know, any road leads to purpose if you have the right kind of philosophy of it happening for you and not to you. And a lot of people said you can't, BX, you can't do Y, you, it will never amass to Z because of where I was coming from. And I was saying to them that it's because of where I'm coming from why I'm going to be able to do X or why I'm qualified to do Y or why I am empowered to do Z, you know? Just quickly, um, uh, (laughs) One of the reasons, um, we've both got our own, our own reasons for life after, sure. haven't we? Mm-hmm. And what you've just said has floored me in a way. I, uh, I lost my first kid to a medical accident. Wow. wow. And she was two. And you know what? I really, I used to be a person who said, um, I used to be a person who said things happen for a reason. Mm. And then she died. Yeah. And I was like, no, it doesn't happen for a reason the words and the language I was looking for yeah. was what you just said. Wow. Wow. You, you, you don't know how much you've just resonated with me. My so how much are you going to resonate there with our audience listening to this right now? 100%. You know, people suffering grief will go, it's, that was not supposed to happen. Why has it happened to me? Well, yeah. Actually, you know what? Purpose. I mean, I don't know whether it's the fact that I've, my son's almost two, you know, but when we say it's happened for a reason, not like, <laughs> you know, like there is no reason. Yeah, it shouldn't have happened. No, it, 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 it was like, a medical yeah. accident in my case, you know. No reason, like, you know, like there's no reason, you know, but it's even similar Like my, my wife just did her um, first TEDx, yeah. And I say first, cause it's the first of many, she's on fire, yeah. But she literally, the females are far, far away from home. And she's someone that's moved um, over 20 times before she was 18 just in London, you know, like um, she actually felt like she had no home. And then in turn, the only kind of current um, consistent theme was her mother. So her mother became home 
And that when her mother passed of bowel cancer, um, um, literally like a uh, ten days before our, what was supposed to be our wedding day, like that floored her, and she felt homeless, you know. And obviously, again, no good can come from that. It's a horrible, sure. ugly yeah. disease. Like this is not like you know. Um, but literally now, like some years later, she's like her whole thing's to go from pain to purpose, and. I mean, she speaks about it so articulate. I, I am an articulate character. I can't articulate pain to purpose like that. You know, like, I actually can't. Like, she does it even via her socials and people get it. Like, but they wouldn't be able to feel her, resonate with her, connect to her if she never had such pain, you know? So it's almost, it's almost necessary yeah, unreal, unreal. Maybe that was one of the reasons why we were supposed to talk today. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And um, it's amazing, you know, you've, you've started from humble beginnings. You've gone through what you've gone through, and every kid, every adult as well, need a role model. So you are a fantastic person to look up to. Um, the way you present yourself, um, how articulate you are. You know, I'd just like to thank you for what you're sharing and what you're trying to bring to the table as well for, for people to kind of, that are in that situation, to kind of follow and, and create a conveyor belt as a way out for, for individuals that don't potentially want to kind of go down that route anymore. So, yeah. you know, massive wraps to you in that respect. Thank um, you. And I'm going to relate back to the TED Talks where you mm-hmm. you did a beautiful poem about a caterpillar. Yeah. Um, just wondering if it'd be possible if you could recite that for us all. Yeah, if you got it in your head. Yeah, yeah. Mm, for sure. it's something you carry around with you. Oh yeah, absolutely. That is that is that is my story, your story, his story, her story. On, on the journey down last yeah. night, it was the first thing that we were listening to in the car. Yeah, and I uh, I think both of us, you know, we had wet eyes somebody was cutting onions in the back yeah I don't cry <laughs> it's one of those pieces mm. that it just resonates yeah. no matter what you've been through no absolutely because it is universal pain is universal love is universal truth is universal like, and I mean it just includes all of those so it's just a universal kind of thing you know so no, you but yeah absolutely cool. yeah, no problem thank you so no problem. much Have you ever seen the eyes on a butterfly's wings? Deep. Deep like the gaze of a glorified king. For they can overwrite. They will overwhelm. Eternal-like. Like. Like they appear from another realm, another world, another life. Yes, another life. I too have known another life. Another state. I am a walking contradiction. I should have shared another fate. I know a butterfly's fame. But felt the caterpillar's pain. My cocoon was love. But who would love the caterpillar? Drug dealer. Who will love the caterpillar? Gang member. Who will love the caterpillar? No. No. They can only love the butterfly. I see them take pictures of the butterfly. They speak scriptures of the butterfly, but label a nuisance. We that couldn't fly. 
They say the eye is the window to the soul. So if you really look close, you can see the caterpillar's pain in the eyes of the butterfly's wings. It stings. So strange is change. So great is love, 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 love is my cocoon. Change is not a contemporary art, nor is it a recent trend. For the butterfly has been from the era Eocene, so that means for 50 million years, it's been standing as a proof that change is real and that change will come. So I say cocoon to the sky for the butterfly is proof that the old me can die so that the true me may live. So now the wingless has wings, but it took a while. Metamorphosis. It took a trial. It took a hug. It took a kiss. It took a smile. But let the truth be told that this caterpillar was a butterfly all the while, just in need of that cocoon. Wicked cow. Love. Carl Loco, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming to see us in Life After, man. My pleasure, man. You heroes. Oh, absolutely love talking to Carl. How good was he? Oh, it was amazing. Mate. Fantastic. I'm blown away with just how, how articulate he was. Oh, and, my God. And that poem that he's just finished on. Powerful. Puts a lump in your throat. Oh. I mean, when we spoke about when we were listening to it in the car on the way to see him and we thought there was somebody cutting onions in the back, I mean, it's just got me again. <laughs> it's just amazing how something like that can really resonate with you, but in, in a different way as well, you know, because we've got different upbringings and meanings, but it resonated with me. What about you? Yeah, well, for me, it was about being slightly outside of society and, and um, a perception that everybody has of you. But when you turn your life around, that caterpillar suddenly becomes an absolutely beautiful butterfly, butterfly. and comes out. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's just and he certainly has become a butterfly as well because even now there's a stigma a little bit attached to him, but he's very, very honest and, and robust enough to kind of handle what he's gone through. And, you know, take it and you shouldn't talk about it because yeah. he's now the butterfly. The other stuff he was saying about you know, where he originated from in London. Oh, man. Ha. The story he told us about there's no pigeons, there's only crows. What is that? Yeah, no. I've never been to a place like <laughs> oh that before. My God. Even where the pigeons are too Yeah, to The police won't even go down there because it's that, that dangerous. It's just crazy. Can you imagine coming from that background and being in that, that such a dark place and then pulling yourself through to to the, the the place that Carl is now, are you just the journey is incredible. It really, really is. And another thing that sort of uh, interested me about Carl is that he was surrounded by so much negativity, but through adversity, he's developed a better life for himself. And I think one of the people that really helped him was the pastor. Yeah, Pastor Mimi. You know, and and sometimes that's all it takes in your life, isn't it? Just yeah. one person to. For sure. What what special lady and a, a God-fearing lady by um, the way Carl was uh, describing her. I just wish more people in this world would go out of their way to help others. That beautiful woman drawn the good out of Carl because she realised that he possessed a lot more than he realised. Two things that I'm going to take away, Phil, is it really is down to who you surround yourself with. Certainly. Your circle's so important. 
And the other thing I think I'm going to take away is that it's all about choices. Yeah. And making the right choice. I don't yeah. know about you. I think the first thing I'm going to take away, all is that it's never too late to make a change. It's true. And, you know, Carl is a, is a walking example of this. And the second I'm going to take away is... I am now a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> I am a beautiful butterfly. I am a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> Next time on Life After, it's Olympic boxer Natasha Jonas. So you always had to be within 5% of your boxing weight, which for, for me was um, 61 kilos. So I had to train down to 61 and I had to stay there. And that was... A lot of dedication. It was a lot of not going to many family parties. Because <laughs> our family parties centred around food and oh, drink. Oh, so you couldn't drink cakes. I couldn't. I've acted. And are you here? No, I'm not. I'm, you know, I've played. I've acted. But in that, that situation, kind of setting, yeah. I was so far out of my comfort zone. It was unbelievable. And But it was a good experience to do so. I knew and I thought, yeah. See Maybe. myself, yeah. Rihanna can play me in my life story. Thank you for listening to Life After's first ever podcast. I know it's crazy. It's been months in the making oh, and we are finally here doing it. Finally, finally, finally. It's so exciting. So great talking to Carl too. Oh, mate. He's such an interesting character, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't, we, we couldn't have started this any better way than talking to Carl Loco. No, what a not great at guest. All. So articulate. And next time, we have got Natasha Jonas, Olympian boxer. Ollie. We are in the presence of royalty. In the presence, we really are. <laughs> uh, so make sure uh, you check out Life After next time. Uh, we're available wherever you get your podcasts from. And the other thing that you need to check out is our uh, socials. Yeah. Um, drop us a like on Instagram and let us know your thoughts on, on what you think about our podcast as well. Yeah, we're at lifeafter underscore UK. We've got some interesting guests coming up soon with some great stories. And we'll be giving you the opportunity to get your hands on some of our Life After merch. And and everybody loves merch. Especially how cool these are going to look. The next podcast is out on the last Monday of every month. Are you sure it's the last Monday of every yeah, month? Because I'm really confused. Mate. It's definitely the last Monday of it's every month. It's the last Monday of every month. And that's how we'll roll going forward with Life After. Yeah. All right. We'll speak to you next time when we check in with Olympic boxer Natasha Jonas. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you then. Ooh.